0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to John chapter 12. This is a very interesting chapter. Colin Cruz gives it the title, The Hour of Jesus Has Come. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem certainly is a defining moment. One of the reasons we know that is because it is one of the few events in the ministry of Jesus that is recorded by all four gospel writers. John, in particular, tried to avoid repeating things that had been well covered in the synoptic gospels. There is only one miracle in John's gospel, for example, that is repeated from the synoptics the feeding of the 5,000. That was so significant that it could not be omitted. That miracle said that Jesus is the prophet like Moses, Jesus is the messianic king who prepares a banquet for the people of God. More than that, that miracle and the walking on the water afterwards said clearly that Jesus was God in the flesh. That miracle was a theophany. It was a display of God's glory and transcendence. So it had to be included. And this had to be included. The triumphal entry was the climax of Jesus' earthly ministry, in a sense. In in the triumphal entry, Jesus, through a bit of prophetic theater, wraps himself in the costume of Old Testament anticipation and declares to all Jerusalem, in no uncertain terms, behold your king. Having said the things of God, and done the works of God, having fed the masses, healed the sick, walked upon the waters, and raised the dead to life. Behold your king, Jesus says. Now, Jerusalem, what say you? How will you greet your king? And John prepares us for the answer. He prepares us for the answer by having Jesus anointed for burial before he makes the trip. As I said, this is an interesting chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. As we heard in the last chapter, Bethany is about two miles outside of Jerusalem on the road towards Jericho, meaning that it was a stop on the pilgrim trail. Jesus is heading toward his destiny and he stops at the house of his friends. Verse 2 continues, Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with me, I have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Mary probably intended this as a gesture of extravagant worship and thanks. Jesus had raised her brother from the dead. Spending a year's wages, responding to that, did not seem inappropriate to her. That it did to Judas tells you everything you need to know about him. Jesus, however, sees more in this act than even Mary did. Jesus sees it as, in some way, prophetic. He sees it as a sign of his coming death. Now, what he actually says in verse 7 is hard to translate. D.A. Carson suggests that this is the most likely meaning. Leave her alone. She has done this in order to keep it for the day of my burial. Meaning that, in some way, Jesus sees Mary as acting prophetically. Whether Mary knew or foresaw what was to happen to Jesus or not, we cannot say for certain that John intends for us to see it that way seems far more obvious. Verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Here, the hardness and deceitfulness of the Jewish leaders is made plain. They would rather kill a man than let his life bring glory to Jesus. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, it is probably helpful to notice here who these people were. John tells us they were the people who were going to the feast. That is to say that they were Jewish pilgrims, not from Jerusalem. Many, if not most of them, would have come from Galilee. And that is significant because sometimes we will read the passion narrative and and say or hear said look how quickly the crowds turned on Jesus on Palm Sunday they hailed him as King but then on Good Friday they howled for his blood but to state the obvious these are two different groups of people the people hailing him as King on Palm Sunday are Galilean pilgrims the people howling for his blood on Friday are the citizens of Jerusalem That has been a a major theme throughout John's gospel, and we should be careful to notice its development here. In verses 14 to 15, Jesus engages in a bit of prophetic theater. The text says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In Mark's gospel, we learn that Jesus has prearranged the components of this sign. He has arranged for the cult, and he has established a passphrase so that his disciples can claim the cult, and he is doing all of this in order to visibly and obviously fulfill an Old Testament prophecy from Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is prophetic theater. Jesus is saying in ways any Bible reader ought to understand, I am your king. I offer righteousness and salvation. I come to you in peace. How do you Receive me. That is the statement and the question that Jesus is presenting. Verse 16 His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Again, remember that one of John's interests is to explore who is responding positively to Jesus and who is not. Here we see that the people from Galilee, the humble, poor, backwards pilgrims, are responding positively, and even the far-flung barbarian Greeks are responding positively. The people of Jerusalem, however, particularly the ruling elite, are determined to kill him. But here we see the first fruits, or the anticipation, you might say, of the Gentile harvest. Some Greeks come to see Jesus. Verse 21 says, So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus will be glorified. He'll be lifted up and greatly exalted and highly esteemed among the nations, but not in the way everyone expects. First, he must be lifted up upon the cross. Until that happens, no one will fully understand who he is and what he has come to do. And that is where Jesus' mind goes to now. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The Father has been glorified in everything Jesus has said and done thus far. And he will be glorified climactically in the coming death and resurrection of the Son. All these things show us the goodness and righteousness, the holiness and mercy, the majesty and beauty of Almighty God. Verse 29. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered... This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says that when he is lifted up on the cross, he will judge the world, defeat the devil, and draw all people to himself. Obviously, this is the event that forever changes the course of history. But what does it mean that Jesus will draw all people to himself? Does it mean that all people will be saved? D.A. Carson says helpfully here that this refers to all people without distinction, Jews and Gentiles alike, not all individuals without exception, since the surrounding context has just established judgment as a major theme. Verse 34. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, we're running out of time here, but this is a marvelously significant passage. We need to notice, first of all, God's sovereignty in salvation, In some mysterious way, in in some way that defies human understanding and our efforts at neat categorization, God is sovereign over even the rejection of Jesus by the Jerusalem authorities. Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn to Jesus and be saved. God is ultimate in that reality even though the Jewish leaders are responsible. How does that go together? I don't know precisely. I just know that both things are said, sometimes in the same verse. In Acts 2 23, Peter is preaching to the people of Jerusalem, and he says about Jesus, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I'm not sure how those things go together, but they are both. There in the same verse, Peter says that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan of God. And yet he says to the people of Jerusalem, you crucified Jesus by the hands of lawless men. God ordained it and you are responsible for it. Theologians call that compatibilism, the idea that God's sovereignty is compatible with human responsibility. You can call it whatever you like, but it is confusing. It is beyond the complete grasp of the finite human mind. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's a convicting word. Caring too much about the approval of the world can kill your own faith in the cradle. That's good to know. Verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is Jesus' final word to the Jerusalem authorities. In essence, he says, I've said what I've come to say, and I'm going to do what I've come to do. And now you will be judged according to your response. If you see God in me, then you'll be saved. If you don't, then you'll be condemned. I am the sword that divides the world. Now, at first glance, verse 47 and verse 48 appear to be contradictory. Jesus says that he doesn't judge the one who rejects him, and then he says he does. How do we put that together? Colin Cruz is helpful here. He says, the explanation for the apparent contradiction is that as long as Jesus was in this world, he did not pass judgment because his purpose in coming into the world was to save, not to condemn. On the last day, he will exercise judgment, closed quote. Jesus has perfectly represented the Father. Those who belong to God have seen him and have believed. Now in chapter 13, which we're just getting into, Jesus will show us the way home. He will go to the Father through shame and rejection and the cross, through agony, death, and the grave. Because this is the path of glory. This is the way home. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.